Hey, Mike, thanks so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure, Big Pack. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you a set of rapid fire set of questions. Okay. What is the best advice you've ever gotten? Hmm. The best advice I've ever received. I've received a lot of advice over the years, uh, and most of it's been pretty good. Uh, but the best advice probably is to uh, do what the good book says and treat others as you would have them treat you. Makes sense. What inspires or motivates you to be doing what you're doing? Um, well, with respect to uh, lobbying, uh, which I've been doing for 32, almost 33 years uh, for the North Carolina Home Builders Association, um, what inspires me uh, to work with them is uh, the quality of my membership. Uh, I have great respect for uh, my members and what they do. Um, and it, there are a lot of things that human beings can uh, live without, uh, but shelter is not one of them. So what my members do is critical uh, to uh, citizens of North Carolina, as well as the United States, as well as across the world. So from that perspective, uh, uh, it's, it's an honor to work for a profession that does such an important task and provide them the kind of representation that they deserve. Uh, and it's been, uh, you know, a long journey. Uh, when I first started, uh, and we'll get into more detail, I'm sure as you take us through, we go through my career, but uh, one of the things that, that motivated me to, to join the Home Builders in 1989 uh, was the fact that they, uh, as the leading environmental lobbyists of the, of the time, uh, said about the North Carolina Home Builders Association, uh, he said, they're not even on the radar screen uh, with respect to the North Carolina General Assembly and, and government affairs in general. And so it was a challenge basically to put them on the radar screen and to put them in a situation where we could uh, have influence on policy uh, we, for the good. Uh, and we believe as a result of the success that we've had, that it's improved uh, home ownership opportunities for citizens in North Carolina and pro provided uh, uh, we've met a need. Uh, so it's rewarding from that, certainly from that perspective. Why is it important for the youth to be in government relations? Well, despite its, uh, its lack of, well, I think probably the best way to say is, is the public really doesn't understand uh, what uh, lobbying is all about. Um, and, and that's one reason that I um, am appreciative that you're doing uh, these podcasts, because I, I think um, your listeners have an appreciate will learn a lot about what they need to know about uh, this aspect of government, which is critical. Um, the The need for lobbying is 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 uh, well, maybe the best way to explain it is think about there's 170 members of the North Carolina General Assembly, and they come from all walks of life. They're basically good people, some better than others, but at the end of the day, they're they're 
I think, interested in, in doing the best possible job they can to represent their constituents. But there's no way that they can know even a small percentage of the things that they need to know in order to vote effectively and intelligently on the issues that come in front of them. So our primary role is to provide knowledge, provide information to those folks so they can make the appropriate decision. And I don't think the public understands that very well. Um, they think it's a social thing or they think it's, uh, um, you know, even they may think it's nefarious, but at, but at the end of the day, it's critical. And uh, the best sort of um, decision uh, on legislation or on policy is made when people have all the information uh, and can make uh, an intelligent decision in the best interest of, of the people. And, and so getting back to you to answer your question, one of the things we have to do is a better job of educating young people as to exactly what this role is and why it's important and why it's important to have people that, um, well, it's an honorable profession and it is a profession that's critical to the success in the system of government that we have in this country. And uh, young people uh, will find it as a rewarding career if they choose to participate in it. What would you do if you were the governor for one day? Well, um, since I represent the home building industry, I think probably what I would do is make it easier uh, to, uh, to build houses. Uh, and I would, of course, I would need the cooperation of the General Assembly to, to change the law, but I certainly could do some things by executive action that would make it easier, I think, to, to build homes uh, and provide more opportunities for, for people to own homes. Uh, and I would uh, pursue those policies. What is the one skill you think is essential for someone to be a good lobbyist? Well, fundamentally, you got to be honest. Uh, that's integrity is the, is the key. You have one, uh, thing that, uh, uh, is paramount and that, that's your credibility. Um, because these 120 legislators in the house and 50 in the Senate have to decide in a fairly short period of time, whether or not they can believe what you're telling, them, uh, and act on it. And so someone who who fails to and, and i don't mean lie but someone who fails clearly people who lie are not by very long uh they're going to get a bad reputation and nobody's going to have anything to do with them. but the other aspect of it is you have to tell the whole story that's the other part of credibility um you have to to not only tell them your side you also have to tell them the other side if there is one uh and there typically is uh, and sometimes there's two or three different sides uh, to the same story. So it's important for them to understand if they're going to take a position, this is the likely opposition. This is what the opposition is going to say. This is this is the this is the the real world uh, cost of what you're doing, or this is what it's going to produce. So that's critical. Um, 
if it's one thing, it's clearly integrity. I mean, there's several other things that are very important. Uh, hard work. Uh, there's no substitute for it. Um, if you work hard, um, you'll be rewarded. Uh, and and also, you have to be patient. Uh, legislation uh, sometimes takes several sessions uh, to get through. Uh, so being patient is is another virtue that's important for a lobbyist to have. What is the one thing you would like to share which very little or very few people know about you? Huh, about me. Um, well, I, I'm... Uh, I love to, to uh, fly fish. So uh, it's not something that I uh, have the opportunity to do as often as I'd like. Um, and it's not something I talk to people about a lot, but uh, it is something that uh, that I enjoy doing and it's something I grew up doing uh, and uh, something I uh, look forward to when I had the opportunity. Oh, that's cool. And what is the best compliment you've ever received? Hmm. Well, best compliment I've ever received. Hmm. Well, I don't know if I can tell you the best one I've ever received, but but I just got a, a recent one. Let me share the most recent. That's the one that comes to mind. Um, a newly elected congressman from North Carolina who served in the General Assembly. Um, I sent him a text congratulating him on his victory. And uh, he thanked me for that. And then he also said, to paraphrase, um, Thank you also for demonstrating what a, the gold standard for lobbying is. Wow. <laughs> so that was a very nice thing for him to say. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that was, that was very nice. That's up there. In the, that's up there in the top of, of compliments. I received. That's uh, cool. Very nice. But he was talking about my whole team. He wasn't just talking about me. He was talking about our whole team. So that I share that compliment with my coworkers. What would you be if you weren't a lobbyist? Um, well, I'd probably be what I was before I became a lobbyist. Um, as, as I'm sure you know from the resume, um, I was essentially a prosecutor for 15 years, a special prosecutor. Uh, and I enjoyed uh, both in state and federal court. And I enjoyed that. Um, it was very rewarding. And... Uh, I would probably be doing that again uh, uh, if if I weren't uh, doing what I'm doing now. Okay. With all the experience you've had, do you have any crazy stories about lobbying you would like to share? Crazy stories about what? About lobbying. Oh, yeah. Well, there's all kinds of crazy stories. Uh, uh, a lot of funny ones uh, and a lot that we can't tell about on this, talk about on this podcast. So, uh Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're right. Okay. Um, the last question I had for you is, if you had the time capsule, uh, 
um, to go back in time, what time or era would you like to go back to? Well, hmm. well, it would be an interesting period to go back to uh, to go back to the time of the Declaration of Independence and uh, to be a, a fly on the wall, I suppose, at the, in Philadelphia to, when they were drafting the Constitution and uh, talking to Thomas Jefferson and and uh, uh, you know our founding fathers. That, that would have been a fascinating period. Uh, that would be a that'd be a fun trip uh, to take for a couple of weeks. But but I'd want to come back. I, I wouldn't want to live uh, in that era. Uh, <laughs> but I'd love to take a trip for a while. <laughs> You know, it's very funny that, you know, I asked this question to a lot of people and a lot of the people answered the same thing. So you probably are in the same boat as they are. Which is How about good. that? Well, maybe we, maybe you can get a large time capsule. We can all go again. <laughs> yes, surely. With that, let's talk a little bit about your past. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Uh, where did you grow up and um, how was it like growing up and what 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 passions did you have then? Uh, I grew up in uh, the mountains of Western North Carolina in Haywood County, which is west of Asheville. Um, the county seat is Waynesville. I grew up on a on a family farm. Uh, my grandfather and my father uh, farmed together. Um, my father was a vocational agriculture teacher uh, at high school level. Uh, my mother was a school teacher in elementary school. Uh, she later became a district manager for World Book Encyclopedia. Um, so I grew up on a farm, uh, which, uh, I wouldn't trade for anything. It was wonderful. Uh, but it also motivated me, uh, to study, uh, uh nothing like, uh, being in the middle of a field with a hoe handle in your hand, chopping Johnson grass out of a roll of corn that you can't see the other end of knowing that when you get to the end, you're going to turn around and come back, uh, on the, on the next row. Uh, now manual labor was, uh, was good for me, but it's not something I wanted to do uh, as a career, uh, much to the disappointment of my grandfather, by the way. But uh, so that uh, I was very active in 4-H as I was growing up. That gave me a lot of opportunities, 4-H clubs. Um, and ultimately, I was uh, elected state president of the 4-H uh, organization in North Carolina in 1968. Um and I came to uh, school at NC State. I got uh, a degree there um, in political science. And then uh, it was while I was in school at State that uh, I was an intern for my congressman from back home in the 11th District, Roy Taylor, in the summer of 1970. And that uh, experience... Uh, I realized that I could go to law school in Washington uh, and work on Capitol Hill. And so that's what I did. And I was fortunate to be uh, accepted uh, at George Washington. And uh, I went to work for uh, uh, Senator B. Everett Jordan first and then work for Senator Sam Irvin uh, while I was in law school. I went to law school at night. And uh, finished in 1975 um, and died in 
worked with uh, one of the people I worked with for Senator Irvin was Rufus Evans. And Rufus and I were good friends, and I helped uh, him get elected attorney general in 1974. And then I came back to work when I finished law school uh, in Washington. I came back in the summer of 1975, took the bar exam, and then went to work with Rufus in the attorney general's office uh, and worked there uh, through 1984 when he was the Democratic nominee for governor. Uh, and I was his administrative, I was basically his chief of staff. Um, when that, when he was unsuccessful, um, I handled the transition with the next attorney general who had been elected, Lacey Thornburg, who is also from the western part of the state, and I knew uh, already. And he asked me to stay on, and uh, I did. Uh, worked with uh, Judge Thornburg for about four and a half years, and then uh, the home builders came calling in 1989, and went to work for the North Carolina Home Builders Association. Uh, so, um, and the reason I did that, might as well go ahead and get the laid out on there. The reason I did that was because, uh, I had gotten married in 1984. I had a daughter by 1989, a young daughter, uh, um, Jennifer was about quite, not quite two years old. We had one on the way, uh, and, uh, Julia, my wife, uh, wanted to stay home. Uh, wanted to be a stay home mom and, um, I certainly supported that, thought that was a great idea. But the problem was um, we were two-income family. And uh, part of the motivation, I loved working for the Attorney General's office. I loved what I was doing. But uh, for in order for her to stay home financially, I had to move into the private sector. Uh, and uh, so that was somewhat motivation. And I've already indicated earlier that one of the challenges when the home builders came to see me, they want to create an in-house government affairs program. And I saw that as a as an exciting challenge, particularly to take an organization, as I said, that was generally not on the radar screen and an opportunity to put them on the radar screen. Uh, so, um, and 33 years later, I'm still working with them. So uh, it's been a, you know, an interesting uh, career. Um, so I'll shut up and let you ask some questions. No problem. That's a, that's a really good insight into your past. Tell me, like, you know, um, if you could, please tell me why, I mean, like, how did you get into politics? I mean, I see that you picked bachelors of arts in, in politics, you know, after high school, what happened as to, you know, why did you go into that field? Well, primarily because I wasn't going to be a good chemical engineer. Uh, I, <laughs> I went to NC State with a full scholarship in uh, chemical engineering and pulp and paper technology, a five-year program, a full ride now, mind you. Uh, but by Thanksgiving of my freshman year, it had occurred to me that chemistry and uh, 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 higher-level uh, calculus and some of these other courses I was taking were not for me, that I was not uh, going to uh, be successful with with that. So I was an engineer for a semester. Uh, and uh, I knew I had to transfer to something else. And uh, so as it turned out, I looked at the college catalog and concluded that uh, maybe I might go to political science and be a lawyer. And that's kind of what I decided to do in Thanksgiving of my freshman year. Now, politically, um, I came from a political family. My, my grandfather 
uh, in addition to being a, a farmer, was also the chairman of the Board of Commissioners in Haywood County uh, for 12 years. He was also the county manager. So when I was growing up, uh, I spent a fair amount of time in the courthouse uh, with my granddad. And uh, he was politically well-known uh, in Western North Carolina and was someone who was very closely connected with a lot of statewide candidates and, and that sort of thing. So um, I was very politically oriented, even at an early age. Um, and even while I was a prosecutor, um, I continued to have um, opportunities, I guess, to go to the General Assembly um, because of my relationships with uh, some of the members, particularly uh, Speaker Liston Ramsey, who was from my neck of the woods and, and was a good friend of my grandfather's. Uh, so I was also a legislative intern. Uh, while I was at NC State in, in 1971 session, um, which was a great program. Uh, I think there were 12 college students. Uh, we took two courses at NC State and then worked the rest of the time in the General Assembly. Uh, I worked for uh, Lieutenant Governor, then Lieutenant Governor Pat Taylor, who was uh, the last part-time Lieutenant Governor. Um, he was the Democratic nominee for Governor in 1972. Uh, he was uh, defeated in the primary by Skipper Bowles, who was Erskine Bowles' father. Uh, so an interesting uh, period of time. And I was, so I was still very much involved in politics when I was uh, growing up in college and then, you know, even into law school, uh, as I was saying, um, helped Rufus get elected in 1974. So I've always been involved in political campaigns as well as uh you know, professional things. Uh, when I was in Washington, I had the opportunity to, you know, some great opportunities. One of the things I got to do with Senator Irvin was I got to work on the Watergate Committee, uh, which was uh, quite a historic, we just had the 50th anniversary, as I'm sure you uh, followed that uh, this year, uh, of the uh, break-in. And uh, we had a reunion in Washington in the caucus room uh, where the hearings were held. So it was, uh, but that was quite an experience um, and uh, part of history at the time. So, yeah. And um, if you had to like turn back the clock and uh, think about you know, the, all the steps you took through your career, um, at what point did you feel like, um, yes, government relations is, is what I would like to get into? I'm sorry, the, being a what? Being a part of government relations. At what point? Oh, and go, with government relations? Yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, realistically, the opportunity the home builders provided, I mean, that was to create a government affairs program. So that, that was when it was clearly presented. Uh, I mean, I did some lobbying. I was the legal, for example, I was legal counsel to the SBI. And so I would go to the legislature on things the SBI was interested in. Uh, budget things as well as you know bills that that criminal justice bills that that were being considered um so i i continue to have a a fair amount of contact with the legislative process even while i was a prosecutor uh for that 15-year period but full-time government relations you know started in 1989 uh so you know building that uh, building the home builders into 
uh, an organization that had influence was, uh, you know, was a goal. And it took, you know, sessions to do that. Um, so, but uh, we're, we're pretty pleased about where we are now in and, having influence uh, on, on, on policy. Okay. And um, before you joined Builders Association, so you were worked in the Senate and then the Department of Justice. Can you tell us, like, you know, what kind of um, experience or skills did you gain from working there, which probably is helping out right now? Well, clearly, um, <clears throat> I mean, I think some of the skills uh, that, that you use as, as an effective lobbyist, um, uh, communication, clearly, uh, and, and that started early on in my life, but was honed uh, through, um, through my career as a, as a lawyer and a prosecutor, my training as a lawyer and, and my career as a prosecutor. Um, it's, it's all a question of persuasion. Uh, as a prosecutor, I had to persuade 12 jurors to vote somebody's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, that's actually a little higher standard, a little bit more difficult standard than, than persuading a legislator to support an issue. Um, but the, the techniques are similar. Uh, in terms of you have to know your subject matter, you have to communicate it well, um, you have to uh, uh, you have to be credible, um, you have to be liked. It's 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 important to be. You have to be respected. Um, all of those things, uh, all of those traits, um, you know, translate uh, into uh, into being an effective uh, advocate. Uh, whether it's you know an advocate for the you know, state of North Carolina or the United States government in the case of prosecutors, as I was doing, or whether it's uh, on behalf, in this case, of the residential construction industry in North Carolina. I mean, it's 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 being an effective advocate. So those sorts of skills that that make for an effective advocate are things that were honed, you know, during my career all the way through. For the very and, and I'll give a lot of credit to to Four H. You know, when I was a, a kid, you know, having an opportunity to do public speaking when I was 10 or 12 years old, um, you know, speaking as state 4-H president to, you know, 10,000 people at Reynolds Coliseum, uh, you know, it, it teaches you um, things that, you know, lessons that continue to pay off today. Uh, so all of those things were building blocks to, 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 um, to, to, to give me the skills that, that I have that I use today. Very cool. And now that you're with North Carolina Home Builders Association for 30 years, um, I'm pretty sure you would have worked on a lot of challenging issues, interesting issues. Can you walk us through a few of them which you know you particularly remember? Sure. I mean, we've had obviously 30, 33 years, we've had a lot of issues and we have a lot of issues. Um, home building is one of the most regulated industries um, in, 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 in the country. People don't think about it. Uh, I mean, I've said that we're probably second only to the nuclear uh, energy industry as, as being regulated. I mean, when you think about it, we have to have government permission uh, to clear our lot. Okay. We have to observe all the environmental laws. We have to make sure that uh, 
you know, erosion set control. We have to do all of those things. We have to have a government permission. We have to have a building permit to build to start construction. We have to have a certificate of occupancy inspected by the government uh, that our house meets the building code before we're allowed to sell our product. We have to, um, so, I mean, that's just an example, incredibly regulated. So the part of, and, and, and regulation has a cost. Um, and each additional regulation that's put on our industry, um, some are good, a lot of them aren't. But at the end of the day is keeping the bad ones away uh, and the un ones that are unnecessary. Because at the, because at the end of the day, we're trying to provide a product that people can afford. And that's becoming increasingly difficult. And one of the challenges that we, that we have today is it's becoming almost impossible for millennials and the generations to follow to be able to afford to buy a home. And that is a threat. That is an existential threat to the middle to, to the middle class in this country because the middle class has built its wealth through the equity gained from owning a home it has educated children it has started businesses it has contributed tremendously to uh, the sorts of quality that you want in a society and we cannot afford for these generations of young people coming up not to be able to purchase a house because they can't afford it. And that's a, that's a tremendous challenge and one that we're facing today and that we face throughout the, the three decades. But I, but I would contend that, that currently that's probably the biggest challenge that, that as a society that we have. And unfortunately, the, some of the solutions to this issue are not necessarily popular. One of the things, for example, that we have to do is increase density because land is so expensive that we cannot afford only to build single family detached homes anymore. We have to be able to build higher density. We have to be able to build duplexes. We have to be able to build triplexes and quadplexes to make efficient use of land. For example, two-thirds of North Carolina citizens cannot afford the median-priced home in North Carolina. But two-thirds of our citizens can afford a duplex. So the question is, but keep in mind that people in single-family neighborhoods don't want higher-density in their neighborhood. And they also don't want it near them because they're under the mistaken belief that it's gonna harm their property values. So that's one of the challenges is we have to overcome our, some of these myths that people hold on to that are not correct, but are so ingrained that politically it's difficult to achieve some of the things that are going to have to be done in order to make sure that we can provide 
housing for the generations that absolutely have to have it. Because we cannot become a nation of renters. If we could become a nation of renters and we lose the middle class, we may lose our democracy. That's the danger. So it's fundamental. Fundamental problem. That's that's a very interesting uh, way to put this because I've never thought about this anyway. So how would you educate the public as to you know how would you change their mindset? Well, it's difficult. Um, one of the things that <clears throat> that I think is going to happen, frankly, is through the political process. I think people are typically self-interested. I mean, let's face it. We all do things that are in our self-interest. Um, and one of the jurisdictions that has addressed this effectively is the city of Raleigh. They've adopted um, the so-called missing middle housing um, that provides higher density in a lot of these and, and allows uh, much more flexibility with respect to construction. My personal opinion is one of the reasons that that happened is because the city council members that adopted it were ones who, they're, they were millennials themselves. And they recognized how difficult it was for the, them personally and their contemporaries, their friends, to be able to purchase a home. And they saw this as a realistic solution. Whereas the older generation who already has their house in the single family neighborhood and doesn't want, doesn't want it next door. Now, the problem is, in the most recent election, uh, several people were elected to the Raleigh City Council who do not share that view. So the question now is, are they going to retreat on that issue? So, I mean, I, I guess in answer to your question, to a certain extent, I think it's going to get taken care of demographically. I think as you elect more millennials to office who understand this problem and recognize that it's in their self-interest and as well as the public interest to do this, I think things will change. But are the boomers going to change their opinions? Probably not. Are the people who have, have you know, the, the, the interesting thing about that I've observed over 30 years is the people Everyone wants to raise the drawbridge when they get their house. When they own their house, it's like, okay, we could raise the drawbridge. We really don't need any more housing in, 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 in Raleigh anymore or Charlotte or in Greensboro or Winston-Salem, wherever it might be. It's like, where are all these additional people coming from? They're crowding they're crowding the streets. They're crowding my schools. They're, you know, it's everybody gets really concerned about it after they buy their house. So part of it is the challenge that that comes with uh, with fortunately living in a state where people want to come and, and businesses want to expand and there's economic opportunity. So we're lucky. We're lucky we have these problems. We're lucky we have these growth-related problems because there are places in eastern North Carolina or in western North Carolina, I could take you, where they are happy to have a new fast food restaurant. 
because it op 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 opens an opportunity for employment. So, you know, it, there's there's challenges that are associated with it, but uh, but we're pretty lucky to be living in a state and in a community that uh, that uh, has economic opportunities for for everybody. That's very well put. Um, looking towards the future, um, how do you see yourself in the next few years uh, down the line? Um, or what kind of advice would you share um, for youngsters? Well, I've stepped down as executive vice president of the North Carolina Homeowners Association. It'll be two years this December um, to my successor, who's doing an outstanding job, Tim Minton. Uh, but I've remained a part of the legislative uh, team uh, and continued to do general counsel work uh, for the association because in addition to legislative uh, activities, um, we also are active in representing the association in cases that are important uh, to our industry as well. Um, I'll give you a quick illustration of that. Um, for about 30 years, we worked on an issue called vesting. Investing uh, property rights basically means that you can't change the rules after the game starts. That if you have a project and you get it approved, then all these permits that you may need to fit, finish the project, they can't change the rules with respect to them once you get started. So we've passed a series of, of legislation where we've moved that process over the years to be more favorable. And we actually... Um, in, in 2011, I mean, excuse me, in 2021, we actually put sort of the final touch on legislation to do what we needed to do. And so the best thing is statutorily in, in the books, exactly the way it should be. But unfortunately, we had a court decision uh, last year in which uh, our Court of Appeals um, interpreted the law incorrectly. Uh, not what the legislature intended, not what we intended when, when we proposed it. So we're in the process right now of, of litigating that in the Supreme Court of North Carolina to, to, to restore what we believe to be the appropriate legislative intent. So in addition to legislative things, you also have the courts to, to, to be concerned about, to be effective, and also the executive branch. Uh, on how things are being interpreted there. So it's a, it's a complicated process. And personally, um, you know, I, I enjoy the legislative process. I enjoy the legal side. I don't miss the administrative side uh, of running a trade association. Uh, but uh, so I'll probably do this for a little while longer. Um, the relationships that I've built over, over these many decades um, is is kind of special and uh um as is former secretary of state's dad Ure used to say that he was the oldest uh, rat in the barn i'm pretty much the oldest rat uh, in the in the general assembly barn these days so uh in terms of tenure uh as a lobbyist so uh it's uh it's, 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 so i'm gonna continue to do it for a little while longer at least and, and any advice would you like to share? Any tips or do's and don'ts of lobbying? Well, I mean, I, to, to repeat myself, I mean, clearly um, you got to be 
completely uh, credible and thorough and uh, personable, uh, persistent, patient. Uh, I can't think of any more P words, but all of those uh, things are uh, are important. Um, but I would encourage young people um, to uh, to look at look at this profession. Uh, it's an honorable profession and one that's critically needed. And uh, uh, it's 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 a perspective that uh, it puts you up close to you don't get to push the buttons. You don't get to push the red and the green buttons, but you're awfully close to making things happen. Um, and uh, you build relationships with a lot of good people. You have influence on state policy. Um, and uh, depending on what clients you represent, um, you have the opportunity to to uh, to do some important things uh, to benefit not only your members, but also the citizens of North Carolina. So it's rewarding work uh, from that perspective. Uh, so I would encourage people to, particularly young people, to to take a look at us. It's an, it's an, it's an important profession. Take advantage of the opportunities. Well, Mike, in closing, how would you define happiness? Well, you get a little philosophical on me, Deepak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how'd you define happiness? Gosh. Uh, well, it's kind of what justice, uh, use another context, is, 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 what, uh, is what justice, uh, I think it was Justice Brennan or Justice White, I don't know which one of them said, um, I can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Uh, I think uh, I think happiness is kind of the same. Uh, I don't know if you can define it, but you know it when you see it. Uh, so uh, I'll stick with that. <laughs> That's a wonderful way to end this conversation, Mike. <laughs> I'm I'm so delighted, and it's such an honor to have you on the show. And I'm I'm so um, glad that you know you are one of the people who is fighting for having a roof over everyone's heads. Um, thank you so much for what you're doing. And once again, thank you for being here. Thank you, Deepak. I appreciate the opportunity. It's great to get to know you. Yeah. Thanks.